Well, good morning and happy January 1, 2023. It's uh, the beginning of another year, another measurement of time, another unit of life and experience and all that goes with it. I don't know what you've been doing for the last year, but God has been keeping the earth spinning and orbiting around the sun so that every 24 hours we travel about 7 million miles without actually moving at all. You know, we travel over a course of a year, I beg your pardon, over the course of a year, all those 365 revolutions, we stand in one place, but God keeps moving us around in circles. And basically, we're back in the same place in space this morning as we were on January 1, 2022. And we've traveled 568 million miles in a year. Isn't that amazing? We didn't even break a sweat. God kept doing it, and we went on with our lives. And when we look back over the last year or two or three years, we find that our lives have been defined in certain ways and free in others. We've been constrained and we've been able to act freely. One of the constraints has been the COVID pandemic started about three years ago. And at first, everybody was afraid they were going to get the COVID virus. So we looked around for somebody to blame, and we got angry about the whole situation. And then, oh, the kids can go, by the way. <laughs> I pro That's my favorite thing to forget. Age-appropriate instruction. <laughs> COVID came along, and we got fearful, and we got angry, and we looked around for somebody to blame, and then the vaccine came along, and we were afraid of that, and so we looked around for, for, for people to blame because we were being told we had to take the vaccine, and then the People who took the vaccine got angry at the people who wouldn't take the vaccine, and fear and anger and blame kept uh, coming around in our lives. Been a been kind of a defining mood for the last three years or so. I I have watched it affect the whole of life. Business suffered. Industry suffered. Education suffered. Hospitals and health systems were overwhelmed. Every corner of life was affected. And then, of course, there was faith in the church. Fear and anger and blame in the world bled into the church. Fear and anger and blame affected faith. Pastoral resignation skyrocketed. Churches had to examine themselves and decide what kind of churches they were going to be. Would they define themselves in terms of fear and anger and faith, and uh, fear and anger and blame, or would they define themselves in terms of trust and faith in God, in terms of love, 
compassion toward a watching world. I've been ever so grateful to God for the calm leadership of this church, the Bridge Church, over the last few turbulent years. How gracious, peaceful, and calm has been the response of this church under the leadership of Jerry and Sue and the elders. And I'm optimistic that in the year to come, 2023, the bridge will remain faithful to God and to its God-given mission to help people connect with God and develop into fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And looking back on the stuff of life, over the last few years, loved ones have died. New loved ones have been born. Careers have been launched. Marriages have entered into, been entered into. Sadly, some have ended. Houses have been bought and sold. Churches have been bought and sold. Time passed. One year ended, and now we stand at the door of another. I'm going to examine a passage of Scripture that was written about 1,400 years ago. I beg your pardon, 3,400 years ago, about 1,400 years before Jesus was born, a man named Moses in his early 80s, there's significance to that, a man named Moses in his early 80s was called by God to lead a rambunctious and unruly group of two million people, formerly slaves, out of Egypt, down the west coast of the Sinai Peninsula to Mount Sinai. At Mount Sinai, God gave Moses and the people Ten Commandments written on stone. While Moses was getting them, the people in the camp down below the mountain broke every one of them. And so Moses had to go back up to the mountain and get a second set. God directed him to lead from there the two million unruly, rambunctious people north to a place called Kadesh Barnea. And that was on the southern edge of the land that God had promised to give them, a land flowing with milk and honey. He had guaranteed, first of all, to Abraham, their forefather, who lived about 400 years before they did, 500 maybe. He had guaranteed that he would give Abraham's descendants this land where Abraham stood all the way from the Mediterranean to the Euphrates River. And now, God had brought this, this ragtag bunch of rambunctious and unruly people, two million strong, under the leadership of an 80-year-old man to the southern edge of this country that he had promised them. So, the, the next thing to do was to send in a reconnaissance mission. The next thing to do was to send in a spy mission. And so they chose spies from the 12 tribes, one from each tribe. And they sent them into the land to spy it out and to see what would be involved in a military conquest, to displace the tribes that were there and take over the land. All 12 of the spies went from the southern port part to the northern extreme of the, of the land. 
north of the Sea of Galilee to a lake, past a lake called Hula, and up to what we know today is roughly the border of southern Lebanon. And then they came back down south through the, through the land, and all 12 of the spies agreed. It was a wonderful place. They even brought back a bunch of grapes so big they had to have two men carried on a pole between their shoulders. That's how fertile, that's how productive the land was. All 12 of them agreed, it's a great place. But 10 of them, 10 of them recalled that the inhabitants of that land were large and fierce and cruel. And they didn't think that they could win against those people in battle. They forgot that God had guaranteed that he would take them in. They forgot that God had promised this land to Abraham's descendants. They embraced fear and anger and blame. They forgot faith. They forgot God and his personality and his character. Their fear of the 10 spies not all, but 10 of the 12 spies, their fear spread quickly throughout the people, all 2 million of them. Memories of God's powerful work on their behalf and sending plagues on, on the Egyptians and separating the waters of the Red Sea and providing water from a rock and safety as they made their way down the west coast of the Sinai Peninsula. Those memories all faded. They forgot God, his work and they forgot God and his promises. They chose to follow fear. They chose to follow anger. They chose to place blame. You can read about the results of that in Numbers chapter 14, verse 1. After, <clears throat> after the ten spies have expressed their fear and their reluctance to go into the land, the people grab onto that fear, they grab onto that anger, and they begin to express it and blame who? Moses and God. Numbers 14, verse 1, that night all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, if only we had died in Egypt in this wilderness. Why is the Lord blaming God? You got to have a lot of nerve to blame God, but they do. If only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness, why is God bringing us to this land or to let us fall by the sword? Only to let us fall, I beg your pardon, by the sword. Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a new leader and go back to Egypt. People have embraced fear. They've embraced anger. And they've embraced blame. And you can see that in history, throughout history. People afraid for their lives complain. People who are afraid for their lives blame their leaders. They question God. They challenge Moses. Why? 
Why'd you bring us here? Why'd you bring us to this place? They forgot they'd been delivered from slavery. They forgot that they'd been taken out of oppression and made into a free people, but they don't have any national cohesion yet. There's still a group of two million rambunctious and unruly people. But they've added anger and blame to their fear. A few verses after that, Joshua and Caleb, the two spies who say, yes, we can, and who don't embrace anger, fear, and blame, they stand up and they counsel faith. They say, we can do this. God will go before us. God will take us in. God will guarantee, will give us success. All we have to do is follow him. We are strong with God. But the people will not listen to them, and they threaten to stone them. So Moses and Joshua and Caleb stand before the people, and they're in real danger. The people want their heads, figuratively speaking. So God steps in and he speaks to Moses and he says to Moses, I'm going to destroy this people for treating me with contempt. God is not to be trifled with. The people had rejected his promise. They forgotten his mighty works. They had given in to fear that they found it easier to be afraid and to be angry and to blame than to trust. God says, I'm going to destroy this people for treating me with contempt. I'll start over again, and I'll make a great nation out of you, and it'll be stronger than this one and better. In what must surely be Moses' finest hour, he intercedes for his people, and he appeals to the glory of God. He says to God, God, if you do that, the Egyptians your enemies, will not see you as doing justice, which it would be, but they won't see it that way. They'll see inability on your part. They'll see that you, and they'll say that you were not able to bring this people into the land as you had promised. They'll say, ha, that God, he promised that he would bring them into the land. He took them out of our uh, nation, wrecked our economy, by the way, because now we don't have cheap labor anymore. They will say that you, God, were unable. Your glory will suffer. Your reputation will suffer. And so he asks the Lord to exhibit his strength, not not by destroying the people, but by forgiving the people. It's a different direction for God to use his strength, but it's a strength nevertheless. It's a strength that's unique to our God, because the gods of other parts of the world, the nations, they're not forgiving gods. They're power gods. They exact a penalty for offenses. Our God forgives, and it's a strength that Moses appealed to. 
So Numbers 14, verses 17 to 23 say, Now may the Lord's strength be displayed just as you have declared. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiving sin and rebellion. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generations. So in accordance with your great love, Forgive the sin of these people just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. The Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you asked. Nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of those who saw my glory and the signs I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, but who disobeyed me and tested me these ten times. This is not the first time the people have tested God. Tested me these ten times. Not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their ancestors. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. You see, the forgiveness of God even as he exacts punishment, even as he imposes a penalty, he forgives, but he also holds accountable. Continuing on in Numbers, but skipping down a few verses to verse 26. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, How long will this wicked community grumble against me? I've heard the complaints of these grumbling Israelites, so tell them. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very thing I heard you say. Remember what they had said? Our bodies are going to fall in this wilderness. We're going to die in this wilderness because God brought us out here only to let us die. God says, all right, you are afraid of that. I'll make sure it happens. I will do to you the very thing I heard you say. In this wilderness, your bodies will fall. Every one of you, 20 years old or more, who was counted in the census and who has grumbled against me. Not one of you will enter the land I swore with uplifted hand to make your home, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. As for your children that you said would be taken as plunder, I will bring them in to enjoy the land. As for you, your bodies will fall in this wilderness. Your children will be shepherds here for 40 years, suffering for your unfaithfulness until the last of your bodies lies in the wilderness. For 40 years, one year for each of the 40 days you explored the land, you will suffer for your sins and know what it is like to have me against you. I, the Lord, have spoken and I will surely do these things to this whole wicked community which has banded together against me. They will meet their end in this wilderness. Here they will die. And so it begins every day, every week, every month, every year, every decade, more deaths. Death in the morning, death in the afternoon, death in the evening, death in their sleep, death, 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 40 years. 
grief, sorrow, weeping, wailing, mourning, heartache, 40 years. Because they had rejected faith, followed out, anger, fear, blame. This episode, now this is the longest introduction, right, to a sermon in the history of preaching. <laughs> With that as an introduction, I think this is the best, most likely backdrop for the writing of Psalm 90. And so, as Moses reflects on what has taken place, and as he reflects also on what God has done in bringing them to this point, and he reflects on the people and how they've, how they've acted and how they've behaved, I think it's the most likely backdrop for him to write Psalm 90. Psalm 90 is the oldest psalm. It's the only one written by Moses. And it's, the, like I say, the oldest of the 150 psalms. <clears throat> it's the only one Rose, Moses wrote. And um, it was written about 400 years before David, who wrote the bulk of the psalms in around 1000 B.C. and years following that. So with those experiences in his mind, Moses prays. He begins to pray, and he begins appropriately with a statement of, about God and in worship to God. And then he'll move into a section in which he recounts the temporary, transitory nature of human life, the shortness of human life compared to the, to the everlasting life of God. And then he'll speak about how our sins make God angry and God's anger terrifies us. Our anger toward God means nothing except it gets him mad and his anger toward us affects our very quality of life. And then in the third section, I divided the second section into two, so maybe it's the fourth section. The fourth section of the psalm, starting in verse 13, he gets kind of wistful. He gets kind of wishful and wishes that God would act with compassion and love and devotion and take over the leadership of the nation again because he sees that as the only hope. He begins, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. We've been in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. And before that, Abraham and his descendants had no real fixed place of abode. You called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees, and he went out to a place not really knowing where he was going. And now here we are in the desert and you've decreed that we're going to stay here for 40 years before you take us into the land you promised would be our home, but you have been our home, even when we didn't have an earthly home for all generations. 
And then he establishes God as the creator. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth or gave birth to the earth, the whole world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Notice how he says, from the past into the future, even across bridging the blip of human history called time, you are God. Speaks of God in the present tense, even though he has no beginning and no end. He's, he, I almost said he started, but he didn't start. He has lived from eternity past, no beginning, he will live into eternity future, and Moses sees all of that as bracketing and overarching time in which humanity lives. You, you can make human history as long as you like, but it will never be more than a blip in the middle of eternity where God lives in the ever-present tense. He lives in the ever-present tense because he is perfect being. There's no need for him to become anything more. We, we're constantly trying to become. We're constantly trying to change. Mostly we want to change it for the better. We'd love to be better people. We'd love to be stronger. We'd love to be healthier. We'd love to be different somehow. We want to become because we're not perfect being. God is perfect being, you see. And so he's in the present tense from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. Now, when he turns his thoughts to human beings, he says, you, God, turn us back to dust. Create us from dust. Adam, formed from the dust of the ground. You return us to dust in death. The idea of returning us to dust in this particular line has the idea of pulverizing and grinding into sand. Return to dust, you mortals, is what you say. And you do that because in your view, time doesn't mean the same thing as it means to us. A thousand of our years are like a day to you. A thousand of our years are like even just a four-hour watch in the night. When you stop to think about that, just for a moment, think about <clears throat> where the world was <clears throat> a thousand years ago, 1023 A.D. What was going on? Well, I don't know. But all that has happened since then has been a lot, in our view, for God it's like a day. It's like a four-hour watch in the night. You sweep people away in the dust of death. You get the broom sweeping the dirt figure of speech here. You sweep people away. To, to you, fixing the times of our birth and fixing the times of our death is like a housewife sweeping out the floor. Husbands sweep the floors too. <clears throat> We're like grass. We spring up in the morning, but in the evening, we're done. The sun burns us up. We're consumed by your anger, 
and terrified by your indignation. You affect the quality of our life. If your attitude toward us is anger, we're terrified. What makes you angry? Sin makes you angry. Sin of not trusting you. Sin of regarding you as having bad intentions toward us. Sin that says that you will do bad things to us when in fact God has our best interests at heart. God has great kindness and love and forgiveness toward us. But you have set our iniquities before you and our secret sins are in the light of your presence. You've got our sins and our transgressions. Thank you, Luke. Sins and transgressions front and center in your view. And as a result, we can't conceal anything. You even keep our secret sins. You know about them all. You see them all. All our days. All our days, few days, pass away under your wrath. And we finish our years with a moan. Go out with a whimper, not a bang. Our days might come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures, but really an extra 10 years, what is it compared with your everlasting being, your eternal life? Our lives are like a blink of an eye. Seventy years or eighty, if our strength endures, yet the best of them are characterized not by joy and gladness, but by labor and sorrow. For they quickly pass and we fly away. It makes us wonder what the point of life is, after all. If this is all there is, if, if this world is all there is, and when we die, there's nothing more, what's the whole point? I'm sure it crossed Moses' mind when he wrote these words. If we knew the power of your anger, we might behave better. But we don't. We don't know exactly how, how powerful your anger is because you've always tempered it with compassion. You've always tempered it with mercy. You, you get angry, yes, but your anger is but for a moment. Your favor lasts for a lifetime. So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. This is probably the best known verse of this psalm. Teach us to number our days so we may apply our hearts to wisdom. What does it mean? It means help us achieve a perspective of our lives that's accurate, that's consistent with reality, that recognizes who you are and in relation to you recognizes who we are. Our days are very numberable. 
Everyone in this room can count to 70 or 80 or even 100. At the same time, we can't presume on tomorrow. We can't presume to, 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 to know with certainty that we'll be around tomorrow. We can get a terminal diagnosis one day. And suddenly our lives change. Maybe we'll live for six months. Maybe we'll live for, live for 12 months. But basically, all our perspective on life and what it means and how it's valued changes when we come to the end of it, when we come to our dying time. And then in the third section, he gets wistful and hopeful and he says relent O Lord how long will it be well he knows that it's going to be 40 years from the time of God's decree but he doesn't know how long he's going to live and indeed he won't enter the promised land with the nation he won't go into the promised land but when the time comes, God will relent in the sense of stopping the sentence where he said it would end. Relent and have compassion on your servants. Please don't be angry with us any longer. Your anger terrifies us. We need your compassion. We need you to satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love. What happens in the morning these days? We get news of another death. We get news of another handful of deaths, another group of deaths, another bunch of deaths. Every morning, the obituaries get printed. And we see who's moved off into the next life. Rather than have the obituaries for our early morning greeting, would you satisfy us in the morning with your loving devotion in order that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days? Instead of being terrified by your anger, let us sing for joy. Make us glad for as many days as you've afflicted us for as many years as we've seen trouble. Change your attitude toward us, Lord, from anger to compassion, from wrath to love, from indigna indignation to care, kindness. May your deeds be shown to, our, to your servants and your splendor to their children. May the favor of our Lord God, of the Lord our God, rest on us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. That 17th verse, he's asking for God to give significance and meaning to their lives. Rather than the futility that they have of sort of living out the sentence of the rest of their days in these, within this 40-year period of time. Makes it all seem futile, doesn't it? Makes it all seem like 
that, that parting of the Red Sea, a deliverance from Egypt, and the water out of the rock at Rephidim, and the, <clears throat> the law from Mount Sinai, it, it, it all paints it in a futile meaninglessness, a futile meaninglessness and, and meaningless the situation that, that we wish there was some significance here. God, you can give significance and meaning to our lives. You can establish the work of our hands. Please, establish the work of our hands. In that third section in which he appeals to God for a change, that third section where he's wistful toward God, he can't know what we know today. He can't see what we see today in our past. We see the cross. We see the incarnation, which we've just celebrated on Christmas, and in some parts of the world are still celebrating. And in a few months, we'll think about the cross, because over the manger looms the shadow of the cross. A couple of months. We'll be reflecting on the death of Christ, which brings about the things that Moses could only wish for. Because you see, we know now that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that whosoever believed in his son could have everlasting life. No longer is our life measured in years of time. Those who put their trust in Jesus Christ receive everlasting life, and the perishing aspect of our lives is taken away, and the life of God is given to us so that, yeah, when these bodies die, our spirits and souls go on into the presence of God, and we partake and participate in an everlasting life. And that everlasting life actually begins when we trust, put our trust in Jesus. When we recognize that God poured out his wrath on his son, took our place, his son took our place. And instead of directing his wrath and anger toward human beings in general, he poured it out on his son and that was payment for sin. That let his son take the, take the penalty for our sin. Isaiah 53, he couldn't know about Isaiah because Isaiah was 700 years in the future for Moses and 700 years before the prophecies of Isaiah reached fulfillment. But in Isaiah 53, verse 10, he says regarding the servant of of the Lord. It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. He's referring to Jesus Christ. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, there's going to be a resurrection, and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied by his knowledge. 
my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Bear their iniquities. So what's going to happen to the fear and the anger and the blame that we rejoice in and, and get such pleasure out of, and yet puts us on the wrong side of God? Moses couldn't imagine, but God had a plan in mind. He was going to, he was going to pour out his wrath in penalty on his own son. In a sense, if we understand the Trinity correctly, he was going to do it. He was going to take the penalty on himself. And so Isaiah is looking forward, and here's what else he says. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he, Jesus, poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. You see what God did <clears throat> to answer the prayer of Moses. You see how he heard Moses' wistful wishing that compassion and kindness and loving devotion could be the could be the, 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 the tenor, could be the, I'm looking for a word here. Somebody help me. <laughs> could be characteristic of the relationship of, between God and man rather than anger and punishment. And so he decides to, to take it on himself to bear the price and the penalty of our sin. And Jesus, I beg your pardon, when he did that, he was able then to take the righteousness of Jesus Christ and give it to those who would believe. Romans chapter 3. After pointing out that the whole world is under the wrath of God, because in chapter 1, the hedonist the hedonist who enjoys sinning and pursues pleasure for its own sake and is guilty of a number of sins, he's under the wrath of God. But so is the guy, the well-behaved guy in chapter 2 who can't keep his own principles. And so is the Jew in chapter 2. So that in chapter 3, he begins by saying, there's none righteous. No, not one. Righteousness couldn't be achieved through the works of the law. Righteousness couldn't be achieved by any human activity. It had to be given as a gift. And so in chapter 3, verse 21, he says, Paul does, but now a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known, to which the law and prophets testified. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. You don't work for righteousness. It's a gift. It's, it's given to you, and it's a real righteousness. It's not a metaphorical righteousness. It's a literal, actual righteousness. Comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned 
and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Moses could never have imagined what we know and take for a fact upon which our eternal lives and destiny depend. God doesn't require us to earn righteousness. He gives it freely as a gift. God so loved the world that when his son came to the end of his life, the night before he was to be betrayed, he gathered his disciples in the upper room. And in John chapter 14, he says to them, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many dwelling places. Ha, Lord, you've been our dwelling place from all generations. Jesus says, in my Father's house are many dwelling places, and if, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. God really becomes our literal, eternal dwelling place. And we partake of eternal life, no longer measured in years, measured, unmeasured, I guess, immeasured. God so loved the world that he gave his only son who's preparing a place for us right now, and he will come again. God so loved the world that he gave his son who would die on the cross and would determine and would describe that dying on the cross that was going to happen the next day as being the institution of a new covenant. And so Paul will recall that evening in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And he will say in verse 23, I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Oh, he, he ate the bread. He broke the bread, ate the bread. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me whenever you drink it. Paul adds, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In a moment, we're going to do just that. We're going to come to the front. We're going to take the bread and the juice, and they're going to be tokens for us. They're going to be metaphors, pictures, if you like, of the body and the blood 
of Jesus Christ, who, in, when he gave his life, did it for the forgiveness of our sins. These are great moments. The next few moments will be good for reflection and self-examination between you and God. Good moments for repentance and confession. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Gives us righteousness and he cleanses us from unrighteousness. What a God. What a God. I'm going to pray, and then you come, take the communion. Father, heaven, Father in heaven, the death of your Son is the central peg upon which our whole salvation hangs. The resurrection of your Son shows your approval of his death. the placing of us into your Son and the placing of your Son's Spirit into us is a reflection of our union with him. So as we partake of these elements, these tokens of your body and blood, may they have a meaning for us this year that they've never had before. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.